Andrea, welcome back to Navigating Change, and I'm really excited to have you here. I'm thrilled to be back. <laughs> so here's what we're going to talk about that we didn't get into last time. I want to read something from your book, Prepared You, How Innovative Colleges Drive Student Success, from the foreword from Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who is a professor at Harvard Business School. And she writes, Larson has evidence that employers are coming to prefer people who have hybrid educations technical and liberal arts. She argues that parents and prospective students should prefer this too, seeking places that cultivate this fusion. The 20th century was the age of specialized knowledge when many fields became professions, complete with their own certifications. The 21st century is the age of interdisciplinary knowledge, when the true skill is to find the connections in order to tackle problems or build business opportunities that couldn't be handled by any one profession alone. That is so rich in pointing out the place that we are today in moving from what universities became and what they need to do now to serve what I'm going to call an emerging student. I have been discovering in my travels that the new hot topic is interdisciplinary programs. And I think that in many cases, we don't even know what we're talking about. I was with a group of faculty, and they all acknowledged we have a different interpretation of what we mean by that. I think it's pointing to something. From my perspective, it's not about knowledge. It's about a new set of skills and what I'll call sensibilities. And I think that ultimately is what she's talking about, is this transition from a certificate that gave you the right to have a certain skill set that was very narrow to having to work in a much more complex world. And that's what Bentley is doing. So I'm curious if you resonate with my point, knowledge is no longer the thing that is emerging that people need. Knowledge is at our fingertips. If we double down on knowledge, what we're going to end up with is in many ways repeating, giving students something like, we're the experts, you learn this, you absorb it, and then you take it out in the world. I think we're still stuck, Gloria, as an industry, in thinking that we're transferring knowledge. Can I say hallelujah? Because, frankly, that's exactly right. Think of the medieval concept of studying at the feet of scholars. Um, going back to not just medieval, to ancient Greece and Rome, um, where learning sitting at the foot of somebody who is has deep, deep knowledge in a particular area was something that we did generation after generation. And today, it really is all about learning to learn. I have this um, favorite quote from a friend of mine and Bentley's. It's Brian Halligan, who's the CEO of HubSpot, major marketing firm, hires our kids. He said he no longer asks anyone about their major. He's a fan of, he wants to, he believes in learn it all over the course of a lifetime as opposed to know it all. He doesn't want to hire people who know it all about a subject. He wants to know how they've translated what they're learning across disciplines and how they've thematically made connections um, into something they've written recently. An internship they had and how that related to problem solving skills that they developed across the disciplines, uh, as opposed to, oh, I know what being a marketing major is all, you know, I know about marketing 101 to 301. Um, it's the opposite of that. It's why at Bentley, we so much 
focus on multidisciplinary double majors and minors so that it, and they can be across very different subject matter like marketing and sustainability science. It's learning to think in ways that have nothing to do with the depth of your knowledge in a subject because that'll just get you the foot in the door. Beyond that, it's your ability, again, to work on teams, to problem solve, to be a critical thinker, to know how to analyze data, to collect data, um, and to apply it and to communicate well when it comes to solutions. Everything you're pointing to there is pointing to sort of a vision of where we should be focusing. What I'm discovering, not only in myself, but in people that are responsible for orchestrating and inventing sort of what this new world could look like internally is we have a deep set of habits that I think people are even unaware of. Here's an example. A habit of belief that what we know is really what our asset is. When I ask people today, where are you a beginner? And I'm talking about, I'm asking people like in student affairs, or I'm asking people in finance divisions or people on the cabinet, where are you a beginner? Nine times out of 10, people are telling me, give me examples like I'm not, you know, I'm a beginner at cooking or I'm a beginner skier or, or I'm a, a beginner at pick any personal discipline. But if you ask people to articulate where you're a beginner at work, people recognize when I have this conversation that they're deeply uncomfortable acknowledging themselves as a beginner. That's what I love about having gotten to know you and work with you is because you are comfortable acknowledging where you're a beginner. And I think this is part of the reason why we have a trouble innovating because we are reproducing what we know how to do, where we're competent, where we have proficiencies. So it starts with a willingness to recognize in many of the places we're working, we do live with this imposter syndrome. So that's the first thing. And I think you exemplify that. You've told me this more than once, that you living in this world is that you had to confront that sense of being an imposter. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, I've had to do that across my career. My husband calls it jumping into the deep end of a pool and not holding onto the side because you may not know the subject matter, the particular role you've been asked to play, um, but you know how to tread water while you're acclimating yourself to it. So it's having the confidence to know that I don't know now but I'm going to learn it all versus know it all. You never know it all on day one. You're not going to. You shouldn't. And in fact, nobody wants you around if you take that position. Um, they want you to be that learner. That's my point here. Our students come in thinking it's about knowledge acquisition. Our faculty teach in the place of rightfully an accumulation of knowledge. And we are living in that world and not in the world of what does it mean to navigate an uncertain, accelerated future? What are the skills that we need to manage ourselves to that? I'll tell you one skill, Gloria, and we've talked about this before too, is navigating our capacity to recognize the moods we find ourselves in and then our ability to shift those moods because I think that is a foundation to be able to learn. If you're in a mood of deep curiosity or fascination, or if I'm in a mood of skepticism or frustration, we don't learn the same way. Now, I would say that when I went to college, nobody ever raised this with me. But I think this is a real gap for us that we don't 
engage students in that deeper sense of a soft skill that speaks directly to this capacity to learn. So I couldn't agree with you more. And it's why, in addition to Strengths Finder, which we do for our kids so that right off the bat, first semester, they know their strengths and their weaknesses. And that's not strength in math. That's strengths and weaknesses defined more broadly in personal attributes and characteristics. Um, and at the same time, we put as much emphasis on co-curricular learning, um, living in dorms with people from around the world, um, domestic diversity, international diversity, learning that your perspective is going to get challenged every single day. It's that set of self-insights that grow over the course of having a really um, smart, you know, uh, focused school experience that's not just in the classroom. It comes from taking what you're learning into the workplace. That's why internships are so important. Get off campus, go into the workplace, explore what it's like to be on a team, not in the classroom, but where somebody's demanding an answer to a problem in, you know, less than 24 hours. And you've got, you know, sweat pouring down and you've got to demonstrate that you know how to think. So uh, let me mention a book that I think everybody should read um, because it's a little bit like Back to the Future, only it's a new version of what lifelong learning should be. And I think it's the about oneself and then about more broadly about um, the things that you'll encounter in the workplace. It's called The Future Computed. And it's by the CEO of Microsoft, the current CEO of Microsoft and the head of artificial intelligence. And their thesis is that liberal arts is more important today than it has ever been before. And you can learn technology because it's going to change anyway. So they will now be looking for best and brightest liberal arts students who then have this compilation of, of experiential learning and other things and are nimble when it comes to learning technology. But they believe that liberal arts is going to be the necessary complement to a world that's dominated by artificial intelligence. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it says a lot about human empathy, self-awareness, um, work ethic, integrity, those kinds of so-called soft skills, only it's the emerging set of soft skills, maybe not just the, the traditional ones, creativity. The tech world's no longer looking for the tech junkie. They want the most creative person. And that comes through this type of liberal arts learning. So to me, that was just a wonderful aha moment to sort of read that this is their thesis. Because in 2011, Bill Gates said famously, we don't need liberal arts majors anymore. Well, now we do, but it's a new version of a liberal arts major. I love that. You know, it's interesting listening to you tell the story how some of these, you know, Strength Finder is an example that can touch all students and that you are probably an, uh, encouraging faculty to be working across lines and it's part of your structure. The other mechanism for producing a different set of skills is to create centers. You know, so for example, the D school at Stanford is an example of a place where not just students and faculty come, but even industry comes to explore some of these deeper questions. I'm curious if you see for Bentley that there actually could be a place for that kind of deeper soft skills exploration, or is it more, we're going to continue to try and embed this 
within every area versus dedicate an area where we can do even more deep exploration. Where does this experimentation happen in Bentley right now? Well, it happens in multiple places, but what I will tell you is it doesn't happen and it shouldn't happen most routinely in individual departments. Um, It happens across departments. That's the beauty of having one school and one faculty because the sociology department which skews toward understanding workplace psychology um, is working constantly with our science crowd in natural and applied science or in our with our finance faculty. Um, our health industry faculty is working both with outside industry leaders and inside across all the various disciplines because they all relate to one another and it gets to that ability to think not so deeply in one discipline, but to learn to think broadly across a whole variety of disciplines that actually do relate to one another. So in this book, The Future Computed, they say that one of the most important majors going forward is going to be psychology. Again, that's something that, you know, I could have said when I graduated from Vassar in the dark ages, psychology, one of the most popular majors, but it'll be a new version of that today. Um, and I think they're really on to something with this idea of what liberal learning, um, it's rethinking what liberal learning really means um, across the spectrum. What an exciting time to be in education. I think it would be both terrifying and exciting to be just entering this world as a new president, as a new administrator. And when I'm talking with people, you know, when when I'm giving uh, addresses, I say to people, you have to know you have entered a time that even though you've got this increasing uncertainty and acceleration and rethinking the business model and what academics really means to serve the world, you have an opportunity to place a mark, but you have to admit, we're still at that interesting point where there really isn't good alternative for students uh, than the traditional model. And there's still so much pull and so much inertia to not change the model. You know, Sweetbriar is an example of it was broke, at least from the trustees' perspective, and they have reinvented who they are. But in the absence of it being broke, it's really hard to change. Yeah, I agree with that. It shouldn't that's shouldn't be the tipping point. A bunch of schools ready to go under. It should be not operating in the bubble any longer, admitting that you need to bring in um, Microsoft and others to whet your appetite, that design thinking um, from the outside in as well as inside out um, is going to you know, offer permutations and combinations that people haven't thought of. And you can't be worried that it's going to change the nature of the way your curriculum looks or the way that um, your kids uh, are asked to, to live in dorms. And I mean, that's the exciting part. Schools should be laboratories for change, not resistant to change. Well, that's a great point. And uh, sometimes I think people hear this comment that an avalanche is coming. They either dismiss it, they see it as you know catastrophizing it, or they say this is an opportunity. And I would say, Gloria, in the 30 years I've been in this field, that what's coming is a certain kind of emerging new way of thinking and the schools that don't take this seriously and say that we have to rethink what it means that we're serving students, they have the risk of falling behind. The problem, Gloria, is I think that faculty and administrators who've been around for 30, 40 years, they've heard this kind of doom and gloom 
I mean, let's let's be honest. That the fundamental driver for sustainability is that we can bring a class in, that we have a decent endowment, and that we can, you know, we have a philanthropy and we can raise money. And in the absence of anything changing there, I, I have to say I'm more and more thinking that schools don't have the despair in recognizing they have to change. I love the idea, Gloria, that you could inspire people to make big change, but I think they have to see the handwriting in the wall, and I think many still don't. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I wish, um, as the eternal optimist, <laughs> your friend, the Pollyanna <laughs> here, that that I too believed that um, everyone's suddenly going to get religion. I think there's a lot of self-delusion yes. going on, that it's about somebody else's school, not my school, because we're still okay. And But that begs the question of who's succeeding today. And it is these schools that, you know, we, we've mentioned a few of examples, but it is the schools that are thinking in farsighted ways. And I'll tell you what gives me hope. What gives me hope is that I am seeing schools like my own alma mater, Vassar, make a pretty drastic set of changes in order to connect um, in far more relevant ways at earlier stages of a student's um, progress through a four-year degree. And I think like that- what's, what's an example of that at Vassar? I'm Curious. Well, the fact that they're now tying their kids to the um, to the marketplace very early, and they're also looking at their curriculum and saying, you know what, our math classes. We're going to figure out how we can take the relevance that resides in the math classes and make that more transparent. And we're going to rethink some of our courses and add value add things. Vassar went from, I don't know, 10 years ago, they probably would have had, you know, a tiny percentage of kids doing internships. It's now over 70%. That's a sea change for liberal arts schools who, remember, traditionally kids graduated and they automatically could get jobs if they went to the, the great liberal arts schools. Today, that's not accepted wisdom anymore. So I do believe schools are coming along. I worry less about the top tier schools in a robust economy than I do those second and third tier schools. Uh, I think that's where the delusion needs to be somehow um broken that that really that that bind that cord that's keeping them from trying jumping in the deep end of the pool and trying something I new i love it so i'm just going to read one of the testimonials from your book which I, I mean they're all great in the back this is from deval patrick former governor of massachusetts prepared you as a roadmap for success for any student from any zip code to achieve their dreams and help change the world. This is how we create the talented and creative young adults we need to fix what ails us. And there's a number of other, other quotes in here, but fundamentally, Gloria, I think what you have here is a way to engage parents, students, and administrators in sort of owning what we're looking at as we look forward and and pointing out the gaps, but with some really practical advice. I've read so many books, Gloria, to date that tell a story of what ails us without giving a view of what's working. And Bentley is an example of really applying these strategies. So I, I give you so much credit for not just leading the last 11 years. I'm, I'm sure it's been fantastic, but writing a book that becomes a legacy for that story and I think relevant looking forward. Well, I look forward to future conversations because I think every school is capable of this. And anyway, really, I, I feel evangelical about it. It's exactly why I wrote the book, again, for parents, for potential students, um, for employers, and certainly for academics um, and anything I can do to be helpful um, to start, you know, sort of breaking the curse of the self-delusion. <laughs> <Nice. laughs> I would I would love to help. 
And the book is a great place to start. That's your new title of your next talk, Laurie, Breaking the Curse of the Self-Delusion. <laughs> Write that down. That's a great title. I would come to that session. Well, thank you. I'll, I will be working on it. I'm not sure yet what the content is, but I'll, I'll be working okay. on well, it. Thank you so much for um, for being in this conversation with us again. And I'm I'm personally looking forward to continuing working with you over the next couple of years and seeing where you're going to go with all this. Well, I look forward to it as well, uh, Howard. You have been an inspiration on many fronts. So thank you for including me. <laughs> <laughs> 